Well, good morning. I am glad to be with you again this morning. My name is Richard Kasky. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Bible Church. And I'm thrilled to be here. And happy Groundhog Day to you all. If you don't know, and I'm sure you were probably glued to the internet or television or radio, Punxsutawney Phil did not see his shadow, meaning spring is right around the corner. So therefore, I wore my spring colors to celebrate an early spring this year. Well, we are glad that you're here with us and that you've chosen to uh, be here. We know that uh, you have many choices on Sunday morning, and we're, we're glad that you've chosen to be with us at Christ Community Bible Church this morning. At Christ Community Bible Church, we trust Christ and we treasure Christ. We trust Christ to do the impossible, and we treasure Him as our deepest delight. And this morning, we're again in Daniel chapter 4. Now, last week, we covered the first 18 verses of the chapter, and today we're going to finish uh, the chapter. And the book of Daniel was written by the prophet Daniel in the um, 6th century B.C., that is, in the 500s B.C., while he was captive in Babylon. The theme of this chapter is the Most High God is sovereign over all earthly kings and kingdoms. Daniel is telling us here, and we are going to see that again today, that the Lord God Most High is sovereign over all earthly kings and kingdoms. But before we get started, I would like to pray. Almighty God, King of Heaven, we praise and extol and honor you this morning. You are God Most High, ruler of heaven and earth. We worship you this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Divine Trinity. You alone are worthy of praise and honor, for you alone are holy and righteous. You created all things and called them good. When mankind, the pinnacle of your creation, rebelled, you had mercy and compassion, and you promised salvation. In your perfect timing, you sent your own Son to become human, that he might rescue us from sin. He was born into humble beginnings and lived a perfect life. He was crucified for our sins and rose again from the dead. Now all who put their trust in Jesus, your son, can have eternal life. We praise you for your love and for your mercy. And now we come to your precious word. So, Lord, we ask for wisdom and understanding. Help us to grasp the reality and blessing of your sovereign rule over our lives and over all of creation. Nothing is outside of your will. You rule in perfect love and justice and mercy and righteousness. We humbly submit to your authority and to your will for us. Now, Lord, I pray you will use your servant, though frail, weak, and greatly flawed, to declare your truths from your word Let me speak love and truth for your name's sake. Amen. So we are in the book of Daniel. Several mighty kingdoms had ruled the earth. The first great kingdom in this part of the world was Assyria. And in 722 BC, Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. Judah to the south continued to exist, but the Assyrians were eventually 
conquered by the Babylonians. And in 605 BC, the Babylonians conquered Judah and they took some captives. They took some of the best and the brightest from Judah and they took them to Babylon and they wanted to, uh, to make them Babylonians. You see, that was part of the Babylonian foreign policy, if you will. When they conquered a land, they wanted to take you out of your land, put you in their land, make you worship their gods, and of course, pay taxes, but to make you Babylonian. And so they had taken some of the best and the brightest, and Daniel and three of his friends were some of those taken. And they were being trained to become wise men in Babylon. Now the wise men were your magicians, your sorcerers. They were the ones who consulted the stars and consulted other things to determine what dreams meant, what the stars meant, and what the future held. And Daniel was being trained to be one of them. And when we get to the book of Daniel, it opens in chapter 1, where they had been taken into captivity. But chapter 1, very early in the chapter, it sets the stage. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, defeated Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and took captives back to Babylon with them. And Daniel and his friends were part of that. And it says in verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Nebuchadnezzar also then took some of the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem and put them into the house of his God back in Babylon. You see, it was God who decided Nebuchadnezzar would defeat Jehoiakim and Judah. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. You see, Jehoiakim was a wicked king who was accused of oppression, extortion, and neglecting the poor And he refused to listen to the prophet Jeremiah when he was confronted. Jehoiakim even burned the scrolls of Jeremiah because he didn't like what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. And Jeremiah proclaimed that no one would mourn Jehoiakim's death. Instead, he would be buried, as Jeremiah said, with the burial of a donkey. And no one would care. Nebuchadnezzar took some of the vessels of worship from the temple and put them in the temple of his God. And by this act, he was declaring that his God was greater than Yahweh, the God of Israel. So in a sense, the humiliation of defeat was not only for Jehoiakim and Judah, but also for Yahweh. Except, even by this act, Nebuchadnezzar was simply part of God's sovereign plan. So when we look at the book of Daniel, it may appear to be a showdown between the God of Israel and the gods of Babylon. But in fact, we get a peek behind the curtain as it is. We see that the God of Israel is really orchestrating all of it. There is no showdown. The Lord God of Israel is in full control and everything is happening to his purpose to demonstrate his supremacy over the affairs of kings and kingdoms. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a terrifying dream. None of his best wise men, enchanters and sorcerers, could tell him what the dream meant. But God gave to Daniel the dream and its interpretation. The dream was of a great image that represented successive kingdoms in Babylon. 
In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar built a very tall statue, an image made entirely of gold. He was saying that his kingdom will not end. Moreover, he wanted everyone to bow before his statue and worship it. We fast forward through chapter 3, through a fiery furnace, and Yahweh again proves he is greater than any pagan god or king. Then we come to chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. But this chapter is different. In chapter 4, we're about 30 years from the events that took place in chapter 3. And Nebuchadnezzar is now telling the story of what happened. He's looking back over the events and describing them to the people in his kingdom. Chapter 4 is actually a letter that he is writing to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell upon the earth. The events of this chapter are captured at the end of his life. He had a dream, and Daniel interpreted it, and then it came to pass. The, the dream is described in verses 10 through 17. And again, it was a dream that greatly troubled Nebuchadnezzar. And again, he called all his best wizards to come and interpret it for him, and they couldn't. Daniel arrived afterwards, and the king told him his dream. And last week, I left you with a real cliffhanger, because we stopped right there. And I didn't tell you what was going to happen. But some of you may have read ahead. But Nebuchadnezzar had told Daniel the dream, and then asked Daniel to interpret it for him, because he said, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. The king didn't ask Daniel if he could interpret the dream. He just assumed that he could. So if we turn to verse 19 in chapter 4, it says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered him and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. So last week when we covered the first 18 verses, we kind of said it was the king's proclamation, then the king's dream, and then we covered, then this week, the interpretation, the king's humiliation, and the restoration. And we were told again that Daniel's Babylonian name was Belteshazzar, and it's mentioned in this verse, and it's mentioned earlier. But you see, this letter was written to all the peoples of the earth. And the Babylonians would have known Daniel by his Babylonian name. So Nebuchadnezzar makes it clear for us. I'm talking about Belteshazzar, and he is the one that did this. Now the text says that Daniel was dismayed for a while. Perhaps he was astounded by what he knew the dream foretold. You see, he understood it immediately. He was also taken aback, and he was silent for a while. See, God had given the interpretation to Daniel, and the gravity of it all was shocking. Daniel was astounded to think of what God was going to do to the most powerful man in the world. And these thoughts alarmed him. The most powerful man in the world was going to have his mind reduced to that of an animal. He was likely alarmed because the prophet Daniel seemed to genuinely like the king. 
And also because he did not know what would happen to the Jewish people who were still there in captivity during the time of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. There was no guarantee that a a like-minded king would replace Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar looked and saw the shock in Daniel's face, and he tried to encourage him. I, I imagine this only confirmed what Nebuchadnezzar probably already knew. We know that when he had the dream, it terrified him. He must have certainly known now that it was about him. And when he looked at Daniel's face, it was all confirmed. So he tried to ease Daniel's fear of retaliation. Why? Nebuchadnezzar was known to fly off the handle. Nebuchadnezzar was known to fly into a rage. We have seen earlier how he would become enraged when things happened. And Daniel has certainly seen that. In chapter 2, when he had the dream and he called the, the, the wise men in to interpret it, and, and he said, I need to be sure that this interpretation is right, so I need you to tell me what the dream is, and then the interpretation. And they said, well, that's, that's impossible. Nobody could do that. And Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage, and he said, no, let me tell you how this works. You tell me what the dream was, tell me its interpretation, and I'll, be, I'll reward you with great gifts and all kinds of things. You fail to do that, you die. I will rip you limb from limb. And whenever they tried to plead with him again and say, this is impossible, nobody has ever done that. He said, look, I know you're just trying to buy time. This is set. This is done. Either interpretation or die. And they couldn't do it. And so he ordered the captain of the guard to have them killed. And then Daniel intervened. And we see in chapter 3, when he builds this great image, and he said he commanded all the peoples to come, all the important people from around the kingdom. And he said, when you hear the musicians playing, you bow down and you worship this thing. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow to this image. And when it was told to Nebuchadnezzar, he flew into a rage again. And he gave him one last chance. He said, do it now or die. He seems to go pretty swaying back and forth there, doesn't he? Do it or die. And whenever they refused him again, he ordered the furnace be made seven times hotter to throw him in. That's Nebuchadnezzar. He is a man that can fly into a rage. We know from the prophet Jeremiah, there were Jews that he did throw into the furnace and they died. He was a madman. So Daniel is now going to give him some terrible news. And he's fearful for how Nebuchadnezzar will respond. But we also see Daniel's genuine care for the king. He said, may it be for those who hate you or for your enemies. In other words, this is bad news. It's the kind of bad news you hope your enemies would receive. This is nothing you'd want for yourself. But Daniel cannot soften the blow. Verse 20, he says, The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. 
Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. He said, it is you. That great and mighty tree that you saw represents you and your vast kingdom. See, these words remind us of the prophet Nathan when he had to confront King David. When King David had been in sin and refused to repent, Nathan told him a story. And David got upset by it. And then Nathan said, you are the man, David. I'm talking about you. And now we see here, Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar, this is you. You're that great tree. David, uh, Daniel avoids any ambiguity. The dream is about Nebuchadnezzar. Your kingdom is indeed greatest on earth and has provided food for man and, and, and beast alike. You rule over a massive empire that has prospered and grown. Your dominion extends beyond Babylon to distant lands. Yes, your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Daniel is letting Nebuchadnezzar know for certain. He understands the dream, and therefore, his interpretation is accurate. And now for the bad news. Picking up in verse 23. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. So this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree from the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from a time that you know heaven rules. Daniel makes it clear from the start of this decree. This is a decree from God Almighty. He began with, because you saw, he's, he's reminding him of, of the dream, because you saw, Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You saw it. This dream was given to you. And because of all of this, here's the interpretation. It's a decree from the Most High. Now, we've seen this term used previously in Daniel, especially in this chapter. The Most High or the Most High God refers to the Creator God who rules supremely and sovereignly over all creation. In other words, Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar, there's no one you can appeal to on this. This is the Most High God. This is the Supreme Court in heaven. You've exhausted all your pleas. There is a Most High God in heaven, and He rules over kings and the kingdoms of men. Nebuchadnezzar, you've gotten the attention of the supreme ruler and not in a good way. Those watchers that we talked about, those were the ones who, who are constantly watching kings, kingdoms, and all the people of the earth and reporting back to God 
what they see. It's like in the book of Jonah where God describes the sin of Assyria saying, for their evil has come up before me. You see, God knows. And He knows everything, Nebuchadnezzar. And what is His crime? It is pride. He did not know or acknowledge that the Most High rules the kingdoms, kingdom of men and over all kings. I think if the dream had concluded with the description of the tree and left the part out about it being cut down, Nebuchadnezzar would have been thrilled and he would have agreed that he was the tree. And he would have been glad about that. Just like the head of gold in his first dream, that's how he saw himself. And judging by the oversized, gawky image he built in chapter 3, he thought he could overrule the decrees of God Most High and extend His kingdom for eternity. But Yahweh does not share His glory with idols or false gods or kings or any person. According to an article in Life magazine, Muhammad Ali, the famous boxer, spoke about himself before his 1971 fight with Joe Frazier. Muhammad Ali said, There seems to be some confusion. We're going to clear this confusion up on March 8th. We're going to decide once and for all who is king. There is not a man alive who can whoop me. And as he was saying this, he's jabbing the air with his, with his blinding left jab. He said, I'm too smart. He said, I'm too pretty. And he showed them his profile. He said, I am the greatest. I am the king. I should be on a postage stamp. That's the only way I could get licked. A little bit of pride. By the way, Ali lost to Frazier on March 8, 1971. But now, for Nebuchadnezzar, the punishment for his pride will be insanity. Specifically, he will be given the mind of an animal, a beast of the field. And this is a real thing. Even in modern times, this has afflicted people. There are no hospitals, though, for the mentally ill in Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar was driven out of the city. And he lived among the domesticated animals of Babylon. He ate grass like them. And he slept outside with them, waking every day, wet with the morning dew. He would remain this way for seven periods, most likely that is seven years of time. The punishment fits the crime. The Most High God was going to humiliate Nebuchadnezzar because of his pride. God doesn't spin some giant wheel of punishments to decide what he's going to do. Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, God does not operate like that. God's punishment always fits the crime. We see this principle as early as back in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden, Adam rebelled against God and God's authority. You see, God had authority to tell Adam and Eve what they could and could not eat in the garden. But Adam rebelled and decided for himself what he would eat. So his punishment was that the things and people who were supposed to submit to his authority would rebel against him. Instead of Adam having dominion over the earth and the animals on it, after the fall, the very ground itself rebelled against his authority. And it would only be by the sweat of his face that he could produce food to eat. And even his wife 
would rebel against his authority. So, as in the garden where Adam's punishment fit his crime, the sin of pride brings about humiliation for Nebuchadnezzar. Similarly, in Romans chapter 1, we see it again. It says, The wrath of God is poured out against those who suppress the truth. You see, God makes his existence clear to all people through his creation. The human mind is able to grasp and understand that there is an all-powerful God and that they should seek him. The scriptures say that what can be known about God was plain to them. But when mankind uses his mind to suppress the truth, the wrath of God is poured out upon them. So their minds do all kind of evil. The first thing, their worship gets corrupted. They worship the creature rather than the creator. Second, relationships are corrupted. They exchange natural, natural relations for unnatural. And finally, God gives them over to a debased mind because they do not acknowledge God. And they will call what is good evil, and they will call what is evil they will call that good. The punishment fits the crime. Back to Daniel. When men give glory to themselves, they become beast-like. Actually worse than beast. You see, at least when a beast lives outside and eats grass and acts like a beast is supposed to act, they're doing what a beast is supposed to do. But when a man acts like a beast... He is worse than one because he's acting contrary to the nature of man. Even today, naturalistic philosophy tells us that we are no more than well-developed animals. Therefore, we can behave like animals since we're just like them, and that's not true. Mankind was created in the image and likeness of God, the pinnacle of all creation. And even after the fall, we still bear that image. Though it is defaced, it has not been erased from mankind. And after this interpretation that Daniel is given, he encourages the king to repent. He says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You see, Daniel was faithful to give an accurate interpretation, but he also used that faithfulness to encourage the king and to urge him to repent of his pride. Daniel wanted true repentance. He said, break off your sin. In other words, quit sinning. That's a sign of true repentance. But Daniel said even more, there's another sign, and that's to do good and righteousness. Now, righteous acts don't save you, And that's not what Daniel is proposing. He is saying that repentance will bring about righteous acts. He even gets specific and asks him to show mercy to the oppressed. We can think of the oppressed in this passage as the weak. Those who cannot do anything to help themselves. That's what mercy does. Mercy looks upon the helpless state of another and does for them what they cannot do for themselves. And this is what God has done for us. After the fall, mankind was thrust into a world of sin and death. And there was nothing we could do for ourselves. 
But God, in His mercy, acted on our behalf to save us from eternal death. And then Daniel is asking Nebuchadnezzar to see his pride and to repent of it so that his prosperity may be extended. This is an opportunity for Nebuchadnezzar to avoid punishment. God similarly extended this offer of repentance to the Ninevites, and they repented. So God did not punish them as he had declared. Repentance leads to God's favor. Let's pick up now in verse 28. It says, All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now, since the dream and its interpretation in Daniel's call for repentance, Nebuchadnezzar is on the roof. Now, he's made it a year. But he's up on top of his palace, admiring this great city. Now, it was a magnificent city. He refers to it as the Great Babylon. And it was impressive. It was one of the preeminent cities in all of history. During the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, It was also probably the largest and most glorious city on earth. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus visited Babylon about a hundred years after Nebuchadnezzar, and he was overwhelmed by its grandeur. Two hundred years after Nebuchadnezzar, when Alexander the Great had been conquering the world, he planned to make Babylon his headquarters for his vast empire. Babylon was a a rectangularly shaped city surrounded by a broad and deep moat. Inside the moat were intricate double walls. The first double wall encompassed the main city. The inner wall was 21 feet thick with defense towers every 60 feet. And the outer wall was 11 feet thick. And it also had watchtowers on it. Later, Nebuchadnezzar would add another double wall system with the inner wall 23 feet thick and its outer wall 25 feet thick. The wall was 17 miles long and wide enough for chariots to pass each other on the wall. And the wall may have been high, as high as 40 feet. There were eight gates into the city. The Ishtar Gate to the north was the most splendid. It was a a massive double tower decorated with brightly colored animals on a deep blue background. And it led to the 1,000-foot-long sacred procession, which led to the temple and an adjacent ziggurat. The ziggurat was almost 300 feet tall. A 400-foot-long bridge spanned the Euphrates, connecting the east and west parts of the city. There were also the Hanging Gardens, which the ancient Greeks considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Nebuchadnezzar had built basically a mountain in the city and and put trees and plants on it so that his wife, through an arranged marriage, she was the daughter of the the king of Media, and she grew up in a mountainous area. So he built this hanging gardens, this mountain that was all covered with plants and trees so that she wouldn't get homesick. And it was considered an amazing wonder at the time. So Nebuchadnezzar looked out on all of it, and he declared, 
And he basically says, I myself have built all this by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. Oops. While he was still saying this, a voice from heaven spoke. Verse 31, And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew, with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. The dream had now come true. Nebuchadnezzar was stricken with the insanity that was promised and driven from the city to dwell with animals. His heart was filled with pride and self-importance, and he boasted of his own greatness. The king took glory that was due God, and he applied it to himself. And by doing so, he invited the judgment of God upon himself. The great king had fallen, and he would remain that way until he repented. In verse 34, we pick up with the king's own testimony. He says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble So Nebuchadnezzar finally looks up to heaven and he acknowledges God's sovereignty. It is God's kingdom and dominion that lasts forever, not the 90-foot tall image of gold Nebuchadnezzar had built or the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar had built nor the city that Nebuchadnezzar had built. Now compared to God, all the inhabitants of the earth are like nothing. And that's what you get when you compare the finite to the infinite. The glory and majesty of God overshadows everything. God alone is sovereign, and no one can question him or say to him, what have you done? God alone is omnipotent and omniscient, all-powerful and all-knowing. And when the king repented, God restored his kingdom 
demonstrating the principle, God honors those who honor him. The king's counselors and lords sought him out. Now, he was not hunted down by them out in the forest, so to speak. But when they learned that his sanity had returned and been restored, they wanted to restore him to his position as king. He had been one of the greatest kings. And they were eager to have him back. Now, Nebuchadnezzar concluded his testimony with a final praise to God. Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And he humbles the proud. I think Nebuchadnezzar adds that last part just to make sure God knows I still get it. It was my pride that got to me. So what do we learn from this? We are 2,500 years removed from these events. They've never found the hanging gardens. They're not sure where all these parts of the city were. We have ancient testimony to its existence. So what are the lessons that we draw from this passage? What does it have for us? It is in God's eternal word for us. Now, there, there certainly is a lesson about pride in this chapter. But I don't think that's the primary lesson. See, Daniel wrote this book for the people of Israel. Now, the people of Israel at that time were in captivity in Babylon. He did not need to teach them about pride and humility. They were suffering humility. They were humbled in their captivity. They were slaves to the Babylonians. Now, a few of them may have risen to some status, but that would be the exception. You see, the Jews who were in captivity in Babylon didn't need a lesson about pride. That doesn't mean we can't learn from it, but I don't think that's the primary message of this passage. There's also a lesson in here about showing mercy to the weak. That too is a great lesson taught throughout Scripture. But again, I don't think Daniel was telling the Jews in captivity they needed to show mercy to the weak. They were the weak. They were the oppressed. I also don't think this was a message about how Nebuchadnezzar got saved. It's not about the salvation of this wicked pagan king. Now that may have happened. Nebuchadnezzar may have gotten saved. We read what he says here, and his testimony is very compelling, but we don't know for certain if he got saved or not. He doesn't mention salvation. We see his declaration and hope he was saved. Some people may see a clear demonstration of repentance, but others don't see it. Either way, this message in here about Nebuchadnezzar and salvation is not the purpose of this chapter. This chapter was written to assure God's suffering and bewildered people that despite appearances, their God is sovereign over earthly kings and kingdoms. Look around you. We're slaves in captivity. But God is still on the throne. God still rules all things. God is still sovereign. He's still in charge and continues to rule over the affairs of all men, even when the Jews are in captivity in a foreign land. We can take that same lesson and apply it 
to believers today. God wants to assure his suffering and bewildered people today that despite appearances, our God is sovereign and rules over earthly kings and kingdoms across all the world. And I'll admit that here in America, we don't feel the same suffering like our brothers and sisters around the world feel. Christianity is still the most persecuted religion in the world. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are martyred constantly all around the world. But even then, when we look at that, we can still be assured that God is sovereign even over that suffering. So while this chapter does not tell us exactly how we should be assured and what we should do, I think that there are some clues in here that we can get. And we get those clues from Daniel. So the first thing that we can learn from this, the Spirit of God was evident in Daniel. Multiple times in this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar appeals to Daniel because as he says, the Spirit of the gods is in you. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar didn't fully understand the spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit, and how the Holy Spirit indwells people. He, he didn't understand that. But he did recognize that Daniel was different. We too, we are called to walk by the Spirit and to display the fruit of the Spirit. And when we do this, it will be recognized by others. Romans 12 gives us some concrete examples of how we are to live. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, it should be evident that we're different. When the Holy Spirit indwells us, we should live differently. Our words should be different. And this world will take notice. They may not always like it, but they will take notice. The second thing that I pulled from this is Daniel spoke truth to the king. You see, one of the reasons Daniel was alarmed was he knew the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar. And I think Nebuchadnezzar was keenly aware of his own tendency to fly off the handle, which is why he reassured Daniel. Even so, Daniel spoke truth and declared the judgment of God on the king. That took a lot of courage. That was no easy task. Today, we can be intimidated here from speaking the truth. You see, we get our truth from Scripture, and our society does not look favorably upon Scripture. 
When we declare the truths from the Bible, we will encounter resistance and even hostility. But we are told to remember that people did the same thing to Christ. So we should not expect anything different when we declare the truth. And finally, we must have compassion and honestly desire good for people. Daniel did not want Nebuchadnezzar to have to go through judgment and punishment. He asked him to repent and change his ways. You would think that the captive would rejoice over the judgment and punishment of his captor. But Daniel desired what was good for the king. We too should desire what is good for one another, believers and unbelievers. We are all stuck in a world of sin. Even our brothers and sisters in Christ will disappoint and sometimes even harm us. Yet, we need to desire what is best for them. And the same is true for unbelievers. We can look at the wickedness and evil around us and we could try to look forward to God's wrath and judgment upon them. But we are told to do differently. We are told to pray for our enemies. And this means sincere prayer for their good. We should pray for their repentance and their salvation. We cannot respond as the world does. And this gets back to the first point. Let others see Christ in us, and it will change the world. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are again confronted by the relevance of your word, its power and its clarity. Though an ancient document, it reveals more about our own current events than even people living today can tell. Thank you for the assurance you give. The only hope for rulers and for judges and for kings and for all people is to worship you with reverence and to embrace your Son as our Lord and Savior. We know you reign over the affairs of men. You set up kingdoms and rulers, and you do that for your own purposes, for judgment and mercy. We rejoice in the fact that you reign, and we thank you that no matter what happens in this world, we have refuge in you. Father, by your Spirit, enable us to live as you called us to live. Help us to speak truth and love and to have compassion for all people. Daily, Lord, mold us more and more into the likeness of your Son, our Lord Jesus. And we pray all of this through the Son and by your Spirit. Amen.